Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Treasure Planet. November 27th. Mr. Yokan there, right? Beware the cyborg. This appears to be some kind of map. This is the moment Jim Hawkins had always dreamed of. Whoa, treasure planet. Now, he's determined to go for it. This is my chance to set things right. I don't want to lose you. Make you proud. Robert Louis Stevenson's greatest adventure, Treasure Island, as it has never been seen before. All hands to station! Walt Disney Pictures presents Treasure Planet. How cool is this? What are you looking at, weirdo? Yeah, weirdo. Brace yourself. Pleasure to meet you, Jimmy. It's Jim. And you are? I want to say Larry. He may be on a quest for gold. To make people see me a little different. Mr. Silver? Cyborg. But he better watch out for Silver. Change in plan, lads! Pirates on my ship! Oh, mama. We move now! This isn't over yet. Sometimes... Come on! Courage can be the greatest treasure of all. You think a pup like you can take on the likes of me? Watch me. Treasure Planet. Captain Flint? In the flesh! Except for skin, organs, or anything that resembles flesh. I think I'm starting to regress. I was trying to work myself up into a state of wanting a glass of wine today, and all I could do was think of milkshakes. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Daniel Floyd of New Frame Plus. Treasure Planet. I can't say that without going, treasure. Treasure Planet. No, because now I just sound too British. Treasure Planet. Treasure Planet. <laughs> I can't get off the first line. Treasure Planet was an adaptation and homage to Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, itself already a classic live-action Disney movie made in 1950 and later a Muppet movie, also distributed by the House of Mouse and good for going on first dates, right, Sharon? As with Atlantis, the aim here was to deliver a full-throated, rip-roaring adventure in the most stunning 2D CG-assisted cell animation, utilising the same deep canvas as was seen in Tarzan a few years earlier. Unfortunately, at $140 million, it was one of the most expensive animated movies ever made and needed a box office pull to vastly outweigh the investment. At $120 million return, it failed and was instrumental in Disney rethinking its output, leaving only two more vastly underperforming 2D titles until everything changed forever for that style of animation. Tonight, we're going to work out where they went wrong in snagging a wide audience, and conversely, what are the finer aspects of this underseen space fantasy?
I have warmed to the film a bit more over time. It's one of those that each time I see it, I like it a little bit better. It's definitely not one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. I think there is a lot to like in it and that it has a handful of things that don't that just don't quite come together. Like a lot like Atlantis actually. Yeah. A lot of the individual elements I love and I think it's actually a more successful sci-fi adventure Disney type film than Atlantis is. I think it works. I think it functions better. But it's I mean, it's not one of my favorites. I don't know if I've ever met somebody who, for whom Treasure Planet ranks among their favorites. Yeah, it's uh, it's directed by Musker and Clements, uh, so yeah. John Musker and Ron Clements, two of the absolute greats who directed Aladdin way back during the uh, Disney Renaissance, and uh, then went on to do The Princess and the Frog when Disney were trying to pull themselves into a new Renaissance, and they did so successfully. These guys, you would imagine, would be the guy that the, the have the audience just like their finger on the pulse of the audience you'd think so i mean they'd be fresh off of hercules starting on this one oh, yeah. at this point which was, underperformed um, relative to say aladdin but still true you know, modest enough and this was kind of a passion project for them too because they'd been sitting on this for almost two decades at this point because yeah. clemens had actually pitched treasure planet to right. katzenberg during that gong show pitch session mm. back in the 80s way back when before when, the renaissance uh, when little mermaid was being pitched as well yeah yeah like katzenberg didn't like the treasure island in space idea and latched onto little mermaid instead probably for the best especially because treasure planet then with the tech they had then there was a lot of technical advancement made during the two decades that made treasure planet a much easier film to make in an as big and exciting a way as they wanted like just the progression from static painted backgrounds to deep canvas to being fleshed all the way out to virtual sets that alone made a huge difference for this film so it probably was better that i mean obviously little mermaid worked out so good mm -hmm. that katzenberg went for that one could treasure and planet not have uh, been used in, done in place of your favorite rescuers down under it maybe could, though it would have not, like... It would have prevented like, Oscar and Clements was... from doing Aladdin, wouldn't it? They would have done oh. that or Aladdin, I think. True. I mean, they'd have been working on Little Mermaid already by that point, or I guess moving on to Aladdin by that point, you're right. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, Rescuers Down Under was sort of the B production that wasn't having as much money thrown at it, and this was probably going to be expensive no matter how or when they made it, honestly. I wonder sometimes if this film would have worked even better if it had waited even longer and been a full modern 3D production. You know what? I put that exact same thing in there, as in, like, not only 3D um, in terms of 3D animation, but actually in 3D, real D, like, just with stuff zooming out of the screen. This, I said to Sharon, you know, do you think that this would have been a better film? Obviously, it would have been more successful. And that's the really depressing thing. You stick this in 3D, get people wearing glasses and go, ooh, things will fly at you. This really would have made more money than it did. There are actually... Of course, it cost more money, but you know. There are shots in there that kind of imply that's what they had in mind. Yeah, like the prow of the ship coming straight out of the screen. Yeah, at you. and the... And morph, the... I mean morph, like flying around in front of your face and turning into different things. Mm -hmm. Kids yeah. would have loved that. The the volcano of the, um, the black hole yeah. erupting. Yeah. I completely forgot, by the way, that Clements and Musker did indeed direct The Little Mermaid. So it was literally that they, they went yay on Mermaid, yay on Aladdin, but nay on Treasure Planet until clearly they were like, right, what have we still got left on the to-do pile? And as you said, we were in a period, Dan, when um, regarding animators, directors and creative types, Disney execs were just sort of letting them, you know, stepping back and letting them do what they wanted to do. And, and that led to a period of some really 
great films that didn't quite hit the mark. Creatively diverse, almost always visually stunning, but lacking the tightness and focus of Disney at their best. Mm. Yeah, there was kind of a desperation about this era. And, and at this point, Clements and Musker had three, four solid film, like big hit films under yeah, their belts. Mermaid, like Aladdin, they, uh, Hercules. Yeah, they had the clout to say, like, we would like to make this movie we, the idea we had for a long time. And Disney would be like, all right, you've made three great films. Go for it. Oh, and they're also directing Moana. I read about that today. I am so yeah. excited for that film. I am too. I can't wait. Seen it. Love it. One of my favorite contemporary Disneys. Thank you, Musker and Clements. You're welcome. By the time this is released, we'll probably be reviewing Moana as well. We are. <laughs> Very likely. I, although, to be honest with you, however, if it's not good, I'm still going to love the fact that they made a film about the Maui stories, which I've loved since I was young. Mm. Absolutely. But well, yeah, but this made... to mention, by the way, that Ron Clements co-directed The Great Mouse Detective as well, so he, he had oh, that yeah. one under his belt too. Also true. I, I think for me, though, that may have enhanced the slight feeling of disappointment that I felt about Treasure Planet. With a pedigree like that, it yeah. should have been better. It really should. Okay, Sharon, do you want to like lay down very simply your problem with Treasure Planet? Because you, you couldn't quite put a finger on it, but when you listen to the commentary, you're like, yes, that's the problem. Yeah. And okay. you took, kept talking about it as a strength, Clements and Musker. Absolutely. And this, it was, it was, it got to the point actually where they, they said it a couple of times and I was thinking, yeah, that's getting a little bit frustrating. By the end, and then it they became got to a the, bad joke. They mentioned it again and me and you both went, bah! Ah! at exactly right. the same time. Basically, what is it? What's the problem? One of, one of the things that, that frustrated me about the film was how focused it is on this typical teenage, white bread, slight delinquent, but not delinquent enough to be interesting main character. John Connor haircut plus a red um, tail. Indeed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that everything had to be about him. Everything was about how it related to, to Jim and the other characters really suffered as far as I was concerned. When Jim's um, not in... on screen, all the other characters have to be saying, where's, <laughs> where's Jim? Jim? Um, we told I... Lyra that this book was originally written by Jim, Jim to Jim. He was born on the 5th of Jim, 19 Jim to Jim. Which is almost true. Um, but kind of watching it and thinking, you know, this is the issue I have with it. I, I could kind of file that under, well, yeah, that's just me and my, you know, I, I prefer diverse mm. casts and, and, you know, several people having input into the narrative. You know, I'm quirky that way. It's just what I like. <laughs> but then efforts. we listened to the commentary and they were literally talking about narrative development that they had cut out because they felt it detracted from Jim's story and there was what was the specific one that made me it go was, oh my god um, it was the captain after mr arrow uh, goes overboard oh um, god she, yeah rather than just like she walks away they stayed with her and she walked very slowly up to her cabin and went inside and delbert came along and said you know i i can i can help if like i can try and and she was she, she was basically distraught because mr arrow had clearly served under her for many many years and you know that she felt naked at that point and they were like no what about Jim? Because Jim feels personally responsible for this situation. And, and it's a great little moment, but the fact that it, I mean, for, for Jim to then go to um, 
silver, but they they didn't want to detract this and say, look, other people feel this, not just Jim. Mm. It's frustrating. The, the specific one was further to that, though. Um, it was, I can't even remember what it was. The, the solution for something had originally been supposed to come from the captain. Mm. Um, and it being her ship, it would be her place to make this suggestion and follow through this idea. But they said... Actually, no, we, we thought it was better for that to come from Jim at this point because, you know, he really needs to be standing up and taking charge. I'm sorry, I'm thinking, it's her ship. What captain would put up with being told what to do on her own ship by a 15-year-old surfer? Well, she does get shot in just the right way that puts her out of the action, but True. doesn't kill her. Presumably because Emma Thompson was asking similar questions. Well, yeah, mainly because the captain herself was so incredibly like take charge that you had to either take her out of the picture like in a in a, a non lethal way or in a lethal way. And so, thankfully, they went for the, uh, the, the non lethal. <laughs> oh well, we should be grateful for small mercies. But yeah, they they literally just kept coming back to this, you know. But Jim had to be doing this. But Jim had to be saying that. But we really wanted to bring focus back onto Jim at this point. And by the <laughs> half dozenth time, I was ready to start chewing through power cables. <laughs> okay, what bugged me about it was. Um, I, I don't massively love the Treasure Island story, but I grew up knowing about it and having it had it read to me. So I always wanted to see a really good film version of it. I've obviously, when you're 10 years old in 1990 and the 1950 creaky version of it gets wheeled in front of you from Disney, it's like, uh, yeah, but mm, still, could someone do like a proper like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves style swashbuckler? Well, I suppose the closest equivalent in the day would have been Cutthroat Island when that came along. No, that sunk a studio. And so Muppet Treasure Island came along, but that was, I mean, even in the day, I, I, I loved um, Muppet's Christmas Carol. And for some reason, Muppet Treasure Island wasn't funny, ever. And obviously, you know, it wasn't really exciting either. So it kind of failed on both fronts. So this really was the first chance for them to sort of update Treasure Island and at the same time, like, deliver the same story. And it is mostly the same story. They hit the same beats. It feels like they shot too far in one direction and missed the mark. There was a remit in the actual animation for 7030, where there would be 70% sort of oldie-worldy 18th century pirate type um, environments and ships and and 30% new retro tech and that is a really lovely aesthetic it is absolutely breathtaking but there are a couple of things like little things like there is a, a, a chapter a very significant chapter of the book called Herd in the Apple Barrel and Jim it is replicated in this Jim goes into a barrel of fruit and uh, here's the pirate's plot but they're not apples they're these sort of weird plum things called perps and I just thought, I know they're trying to do their own thing, but why aren't they just apples? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a little thing, but ultimately, at the beginning of Star Trek, which, by the way, seems to take a hell of a lot of uh, inspiration from this film, the, you know, as in the, the young tearaway Jim, Kirk Hawkins, but like, even down to the fact that he gets chased by robot cops, and even down to the fact that he has serious daddy issues, and even down to the fact that... Um, to get out of a black hole they ride a blast wave out of it that all totally happened in Star Trek J.J. Abrams has a way of sort of adding the mundane to the fantastical to make it more real so if they're just apples then you're like wow that that re I could really be on the ship I could pre pretty much taste those apples 
And it just seems like that's, it's only one moment, but it's exemplary of a lot of different times when rather than giving you like pirates, they're giving you aliens that fart. You know? With their like six arms. And they're giving you a guy who sort of splits in two and they're giving you a, a woman who's also a giant head on a stick. And like, it's so weird and it's so off the wall that they don't have that grounding in reality of them just being pirates. There is something that's not quite tethered about it, you're right. Yeah. It doesn't make it a bad film. The bad comedy makes it a bad film. <laughs> but um, no, the, the actual like just overshooting, it's all mostly forgivable. Um, the other situation is the um, they're pitching at very young boys. And this is a problem for the film overall because... They're making farting noises with the farting aliens, and their morphs there as this immense distraction. It's almost like it's the morph film. That like whenever morphs around, he is a, a a camera hog. Everything becomes about him. He even ends up driving the plot with the whole map thing at one point. And then once morph takes a bit of a backseat, Ben turns up. And I like Martin Short most of the time in the eighties. But after he did Father of the Bride, and including when he did Father of the Bride, he seemed to take on the perspective of, if I scream really loud, that's really funny. Oh, this is fantastic. The carbon-based life form come to rescue me at last. I just want to hug you and squeeze you and hold you close to me. All right. Oh. Did you just let go of me? Oh, sorry. 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 It's just... I've, I've been marooned for uh, so long. I mean, <laughs> solitude's fun. Don't get me wrong, for heaven's sakes, after a hundred years, you go a little nuts! <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, my... I am, um... My name is... Uh... Ben! Of course I'm Ben! The bioelectronic navigator. Oops. And you are? Jim. Oh, what a pleasure to meet you, Jimmy. It's Jim. Anyway, look, I'm kind of in a hurry, okay? I gotta find a place to hide, and there's pirates oh, chasing me. pirates! Don't get me started on pirates! I don't like them! I remember Captain Flint! This guy had such a temper! Wait, wait, wait. You knew Captain Flint? I think he suffered from mood swings, personally. I'm not a therapist in any way. But I... You let me know when I'm rambling! Well, but that means... Well, wait, but then you gotta know about the treasure? Treasure? Yeah, Flint's Trove, you know, uh, Lord of a Thousand Worlds. It's, well, it's... It's, 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 it's all... Fuzzy. <laughs> wait. I... I re re remember. I do. I, uh, treasure! Lots of treasure! Buried in its... Centroid! Centroid! Centroid of the mechanism! And there was this big... Door opening and closing and opening and closing. And Captain Flint wanted to make sure nobody could ever get to his treasure, so I helped him. No, that is accessible. And There's something so mismanaged about Ben as a character. It's like he's try. How did I describe it here? Hang on. Bobcat Goldthwaite meets Gilbert Gottfried by way of a shit bender trying to be the genie. That's pretty much it. 
The fact that this follows uh, several seasons of Futurama, which started in 1999, means that a hell of a lot of these great sort of future tech gags in a world that doesn't have to be entirely bolted down in physics have already been made and better. Though this is still a way better film than Robots. Anyone remember Robots? Ugh. They couldn't even get Robin Williams to be funny in that. As the character Fender. And the amount of, like I said, like little boy humour kind of swamps the rest of it. So it's almost like, well, if you're not a little boy, um, you can look at the gorgeous art or you can relate to the tearaway kid. Because, I mean, ultimately, Jim isn't pitched for little boys. Jim's actually a bit too moody for younger boys. He's, he's more sort of there for the older boys or the adult males to sort of look to. At least adult males introspective enough to be able to look back on their moody teen years and recognise something of themselves in Jim. What's there for girls in this? There's the captain who gets put out of action. Yeah. There, I mean, I suppose if you're a young girl, you can find Jim relatable on some level. and You know, you, you, you don't necessarily need a point of identification. But it almost seems like they didn't... They were going, right, we've got our audience. He's basically... You know, remember the flashback at the beginning, young Jim when he was a, a kid? That's who they're aiming at. Boys who think that big explosions are, are awesome, and that's fine. But that is a very well catered for audience, and they were approaching this at the exact point when that little audience was going to be very well catered for, even more so. So there's that. Having said that, the core of the story, the threads of the story, are really still really strong, and although they have all these baubles hanging off them. I, you know, even though I'm not really given a, a real reason to like Jim, I like him and identify with him. And all of the stuff with him and Silver is excellent. It's really good. For me, at least. Sharon, you said you had a problem with emotional constipation. Um, yeah, I, this is, I suppose, going to contrast sharply with what I've said about other things in the past and, and Disney doing the um, pour your heart out a little bit too overblown. Mm -hmm. But the... Uh, I, I feel something really strongly. I need to make it obvious to the audience, yet I cannot speak my feelings because that's not what men do. I shall stare at my feet and walk over here a bit. It, it, there's just a little bit too much of that. I don't need the characters to be constantly chanting on about how they feel, but something to indicate that at some point in their life they have learned that expressing a feeling any feeling would be good. I think you are right that Jim is the real reason this movie doesn't completely hang together. And it's, I mean, because, yes, Ben is annoying, but he doesn't show up to like the last third and he jar jars it up a bit around then. He's basically a bit. Just, uh, <laughs> He derails the whole film. He, that's the thing. He's still actually kind of sidelined a lot of the time. He shows up to shout comedy a good bit, but then he's mostly unimportant and he could have been pretty easily excised from the film without actually having Which a Which makes it worse. Oh, agreed, but that's what I'm saying. At the he's, end a, of the day, he's a lamp. He's, he's just a comedy character. He's a genie or a Phil or Iago or a Scuttle who's not funny. That just makes him annoying. Good comparison, but, actually. There's a point when he slinks away, like having been told, we don't need you anymore. And then he gets told, no, we do need you. And he turns around and goes, da, 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 da. the carpet does that exact same thing. But the carpet's brilliant and Ben is loathsome. Well, it's, he's a loud, boisterous character who they're trying to make funny, but not succeeding. <laughs> but you can have that and have it not completely wreck a movie. I think if Jim's character was working better, mm. we'd be fine overlooking 
Ben's nonsense. And I think the problem with Jim isn't even that they tried to focus on him. I think them trying to put so much focus on him is actually maybe a symptom of the real issue, which mm-hmm. is that I don't really start empathizing with Jim until halfway through the movie. In 38 minutes, yes. to be precise. Absolutely. Because he does, you, were, you guys are right, he spends most of the film's first half Solid. being sort of generically cool, brooding teenager. Mm. And brooding teenagers are really hard to empathize with because they're all bottled up and you don't really know exactly what they're thinking or feeling or you're not necessarily being made to feel as the viewer what they are feeling and empathize with them in that way. And it's not until the music montage of Jim and Silver becoming friends that I start to like him because that's when I start finally seeing a little vulnerability. Mm. Like, like we see Silver jump in a skiff and appear to leave and we see that trigger a memory in Jim of Jim's father leaving and we see like on his face just like sort of that sadness and that sorrow coming back and then the relief when he sees that Silver is not leaving that he wants him to come along Mm. and like that's the moment where I actually as a viewer start feeling the emotions he's going through that's when I start caring about him and then after the black hole escape when Jim thinks he's failed and starts crying into Silver's chest and Silver embraces him that's the moment that I really care about this kid yeah yeah but it comes so late in the movie. Yeah. It, like, it There's be... a point at the beginning where uh, he's just sitting on the roof that if it was a musical, that's when it burst into song and sang, When will my reflection show who I am inside? Of course, he can't do that. But you don't have to have your characters burst into song to give them that background. That earlier part, when you're showing Jim and he's being read a bedtime story, that's when you show young Jim's father leaving and you show that bit first so that you are invested in the character. They, I completely get what they were trying to do, which is, no, 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 hold that back, hold that back. So to get sort of like, so then you go, ah, oh, now I like Jim. As you say, it's too late. If you, if you show it at the beginning, what have you really lost there by having exactly. people engage with your character immediately? That's a that's a big thing. Like it would be one thing if Jim was a side character who mm. we started out not liking or understanding that much, but then eventually we learn more about him and start to care for yeah, him. Yeah. That's okay. There's some great that's Zuko. We that we there's great characters like that. But you couldn't but, start out Ang like that. And you couldn't and it, yeah, you couldn't start out Ang like that, and you couldn't have a film about Zuko that where you didn't start to like him till the end of season two. Yeah. Jim's our protagonist. He's the one we're supposed to be empathizing. He, like empathizing with him is what engages us in the drama of the story from the start and that lack of an early strong empathetic, empathetic connection to Jim mm. is the big thing that holds the rest back and keeps you from having a strong connection I think like Phil, uh, Film Crit Hulk makes this really great example of precisely this thing we're actually talking about in Finding Nemo we have that really early scene before the uh, title appears of Marlon and his wife as like this as equivalent of newlyweds or new parents and they're really excited and the barracuda scene happens and marlin is left with only just the one damaged egg and that understanding of marlin's character completely makes us understand him for the entire rest of the film because if we didn't have that if that movie came halfway through the like if that scene came halfway through the film it was a reveal later we would be really annoyed by marlin through most of the movie because he's just being really cautious and he's being really stick in the mud and kind of obnoxious and we wouldn't really like him but because we know why he's that way we care about him and Apparently, Andrew Stanton wanted to have that be a reveal later in the film, but he was talked out of it. And in one of Andrew Stanton's later films, John Carter, if you remember that that exists, <sighs> the, char- the really big, important character reveal of about his wife and family 
the mate of John Carter's wife and family, is held until halfway through the film. And, and my God, the first is that half not slow ass boring beginning. I stopped <laughs> after fifteen minutes. <laughs> yeah, you just you don't care about that guy at all, and even it's just I don't know if that really would have saved the movie or anything because it's got other problems, but. Mm. But you have like that early empathetic connection is so important to making you care about what's happening. And Jim doesn't have that until halfway through. The weird thing is, though, if you think about it, that's that's life. When you meet people, they don't present you with a dramatized version of their early childhood experiences and the uh, traumas that lead them to behave the way they do. You have to unpick that later. But the point of stories is to try and and or one well one of the point of stories anyway is to try and get us to look at those people in a different way and to think about what might have gone on with them before that and if you're asking a disney audience to fill all the backstory in themselves before it really connects that's a lot for them to have to think about especially while you're distracting them with farting aliens and small morph-like creatures. And you have to stop touching me. Touching and talking. That's my two big no-nos. Okay. Oh, for sure. And it's not like a hard set rule. Every film you must empathize with the main character from the beginning, because there's lots of films that that's not true for. But for this kind of movie that Disney tells, Mm. uh, that Disney creates, and this sort of very Star Wars-ish type story that, like, it's really important that you care about Luke from the start and yeah. we don't unfortunately yeah. and it can be done so simply as well I think that's that's another element that that's a little bit frustrating the fact that it would have been so easy to put something like that in it's managed in Star Wars with about three lines and a shot of Luke looking out to the sunset you can go to the academy next year you must understand I need you here, Luke. but it's a whole nother year look it's only one more season yeah, she said when Bigs and Tank left. And that's all you need. He's where he is. He doesn't want to be where he is. He constantly thinks about where he really wants to be. He doesn't necessarily go. have to sing, I will find my way. No. I can go the distance. And you've already started out, Star Wars, with early, the early 10 or so minutes of lots of adventure and space fighting and big, and big dramatic stuff happening out in the universe. And then you go down to this little sandy planet where this kid is who wants to be a part of these bigger things that you as a viewer are really excited being a part of yourself. So you totally understand like wanting to leave with this kid, get off this, get off this dust planet and go 
take part in the grand adventure. So it works really well. Even in Star Trek, where but you basically you don't see Jim at all until later on, and all of the stuff to do with the intro sequence is inferred because you know that because his father died protecting a starship and his mother by proxy and him, that that's going to leave a massive weight on him. So when he looks up at the uh, Enterprise in exactly the same way that uh, Luke looks up at uh, the Tatooine binary sunset, you get that feeling that there's a lot of stuff going on in that head of his. And so he doesn't have to say it all out loud. Absolutely. You're given the information and then you process that stuff. All of those complaints and those problems stated, I think the reason that I still do actually kind of like a treasure planet despite Mm -hmm. all that. I don't love it, but I do still like it. And I think the thing that saves it is that John Silver is fantastic in every single way. Agreed. Yeah. From from his design to Brian Murray's performance Mm -hmm. to Glenn Keane's animation performance, I just love every second he is on the screen. Mm -hmm. And to the the slight movements and the subtlety and the fact that they have to juggle this, you know, is he actually a cold-hearted pirate? Does he care about Jim? It's obvious once you've seen it once, those little signs that of course he cares about Jim to the point where, of of course, when confronted with treasure or saving Jim's life, he's going to choose Jim. But it's, it's a rare and unusual situation where you're conv- confronted with a villain who feels a deep compulsion to be good. Yeah, and Keen is just so good with these big characters like Radigan and Beast. Mm. And not only at giving them like their weight and form, which he's good at that too, but also at communicating so much through their physicality. Because those three characters feel and act very differently despite their big weight. And... Silver's a dangerous man with all these powerful mechanical parts, but there's also such gentleness and sincerity to him. Like, they're, like he is good with people, and he sometimes uses that for his own ends, but he he knows how to behave around people. And I, I, Keen's created a lot of great animated performances by this point in Disney history, but I think Silver might be one of his best, actually. Yeah. One of the things I really like about him, actually, is that that um, mechanical arm that he has is kind of a, a, a microcosm of his character and his personality it looks very um uh, alienating and off-putting it's not the kind of thing that you'd want to come up and give you a hug Mm. and yet it can and that's the arm he uses to embrace jim later on the fact that one of the first things you see him doing with it is preparing the food even down to the incredibly delicate task of cracking the eggs and yet he manages to do it with this terrifying looking robot hand that looks like if it tried to do that maneuver with your skull it would crush it and the fusing of the 2d and 3d elements for that character is just technically seamless that's very impressive like unifying those two and making them feel like this part of the same thing cannot have been easy did you see the art test with um i did yes with captain (laughs) hook they give captain hook a bionic arm (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i I love seeing that sort of like early r&d test animation stuff and you know how Glenn Keane seems to always have this amazing story about how he finds the char- each character he works on? Yeah. So when developing Silver, um, Silver's fatherly side and the way he treats Jim came from a memory that Glenn tells about when he was playing football in high school. And he'd worked so hard to become a starting halfback on his school team. And he was competing with a much bigger 
guy for the position, so he was really the underdog here. And one day he finally got this chance to start, and he was incredibly proud, but the head coach ended up pulling him off the field after only three oh, plays and, tu- yeah. and touching the ball just once, and they put the other guy in, and Glenn was just crushed by it because this was his moment to shine, and it had just been taken away before he'd even had a chance. And then later in the parking lot, he says that the assistant coach came up to him and put a hand on his shoulder and just earnestly said, Glenn, you are going to do great things. You're going to get that starting position. It's not right what happened. And that memory just fueled the scene where Silver comforts Jim after the black hole. I love Glenn Keane's stories about where he finds characters because he always has a good one. He packed so much uh, emotion into that scene. I want to be there to see the light coming off of yes. Sharon, interpret that in terms of emotion because you say, you know, you said emotional constipation. I think that's basically showing about as much as emotion, emotion as you can at yes. that stage. Yeah, I, I really do love that scene. And one of, actually, what I found most astounding about that was when um, he was talking about it on the commentary, the terms in which he put it, he described the situation that had led to him wanting to present that scene. And then he was really hard on himself about the way he'd put it across. You can't possibly do that. Because he was saying, you know, you you have these incredibly um, real uh, scenes in your head and you can't possibly put it across on the screen the way it felt to you and and how important it was to you. And I I kind of understand what he means because if you externalise something, it's not just yours anymore. When When it's in your head, that's your personal private moment. Once you externalise it, people get to take it away and, and lay their own interpretation over it. But he did such an amazing job with it. And to look at that and still feel that he didn't do as well as he could have done was such a shame. I mean, what what artist is actually still happy with their work even two days True. after they finished True. it? True, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It wasn't your fault, you know. Why, half the crew would be spinning in that black abyss if not Look, don't you get it? I screwed up! I mean, for two seconds, I thought that maybe I could do something right, but... Ah! I just... Just forget it. Forget it. No. You listen to me, James Hawkins. You got the makings of greatness in you. But you gotta take the helm and charge your own course. Stick to it, no matter the squalls. And when the time comes, you get the chance to really test the cut of your sails and show what you're made of. Well, I hope I'm there, catching some of the light coming off you that day. Um, I must be getting about my watch, and you'd best be getting some shut eye. Getting in 
too deep here, Morphy. Next thing you know, they'll be saying I've gone soft. <laughs> Another thing that's very powerful about that scene and what surrounds it is that we've we've talked about um, the the skill in acting where you're communicating several emotions to the audience at once that the, the character is feeling several different things all mixed up together mm-hmm. and that it's even more difficult to do that when it's just when it's a, an animated performance because all the actor has is their voice and in that scene Silver doesn't even have that. He barely speaks. I mean, in the the beginning part, obviously not when he does the speech. Mm. But in his, like you said about the physicality, Dan, in the way he moves, in his expressions, and some of the changes in his expression are very slight. um, That when he says later on about how, oh, everybody will think you've gone soft. And then when he does turn it about and, and sort of takes on this incredibly hard edge, it's not a case of... Um, you know, he's still looking uh, like the same man that embraced Jim and tried to uh, bring him out of his funk by inspiring him. But he's just putting these words out to make the crew feel that. You can see his features harden. He deliberately kind of almost pumps himself up into this, uh, the, the domineering character again to try and secure that place. But then you see that slight deflation when everybody walks away from him. And it's it, it's that constant, I think, up and down um, in that selection of scenes that really sells that uh, that side of his character and that um, uh, that development in him. Absolutely. Like in in those scenes where he is in kind of pirate mode with with uh, his little group, he is it's all big, sharp movement like movements he's controlling the space everyone else is having to move around him yeah. mm. he'll swing a sword around everyone else has to duck but if he's trying to like if he's in charm and friendly mode he will very delicately and gingerly like his big huge frame move kind of up toward you very softly and let you come the rest of the way he's always got a very soft expression on and when he gets if he's being really friendly with you and having to put it on and then he's kind of like shifting to an angry mode like when he's talking with trying to negotiate with jim later when like uh, down on the planet it's not that he suddenly gets very big and angry again it's just that the charming melts away and he goes to just very relaxed and kind of stern-faced sort of with an expression of this isn't going to end well for you and you're not leaving me a lot of options mm-hmm. it's, it's just that kind of acting choice which is not always the like you don't always go for the most obvious simple straightforward way to perform something it's just there's a lot of subtlety to it it keeps the audience guessing, and certainly people who don't already know the story, they need to be worried that he might actually do something terrible. Mm. And yeah. it's also an extremely difficult character to maintain sympathy for, because ultimately he is, if if you strip away the, the positive interactions that, that Jim has with him and only leave the negative and the uh, ambivalent ones... He's very abusive, he's very manipulative, and he will 
if he's not getting the result that he wants, he can turn on a dime from the, the charming to the aggressive. Yeah, which and makes you a, wonder what was true. Absolutely. And that's a very difficult person to, to work around. What it, you know, however much sympathy you have for their motivations and why they behave the way they do. That's a very difficult person to interact with and spend time with because you can't, you can't predict their behavior. You can't gauge their reactions accurately because, as you say, you don't know what's real and what's not. And more importantly, you don't know what your behavior is then going to elicit from them, which makes it difficult difficult to work out what you should do, which keeps everybody on the back foot the whole time. Now, that kind of person, normally, you would want to push as far away from you as humanly possible. So to, to create that character, to communicate that side of him as effectively as they do, to keep him threatening when he needs to be threatening, and yet still have him be somebody that you can, um, you can relate to and understand and even love by the end. To, and to have that feeling of when Jim lets him go, that was the right decision. Absolutely. I, I feel like if if Jim as his character was working as well as Silver's was, if just the if just those two characters, their connection and their emotional arcs worked, I think all the rest of our complaints would just be little footnotes by the wayside. Like they all they would just be the Timon and Pumbas of of treasure planet like they're stuff that maybe like yeah there's fart jokes and some gags that don't really land but whatever the rest of this is so great that it all just kind of comes into one becomes one big great thing i think yeah i think the gym is really the the weak link that keeps this film from greatness mm. but we've i mean we've said this so many times before if you engage and you are um invested in what you're watching you don't notice the flaws anywhere near as strongly. Yeah. If you're Absolutely. not engaged, the flaws are all you notice. As an adaptation as well, this is troublesome. Going back to the, um, the, the bit about the apple barrel, they could have actually pitched this to allow a kid to watch this film and then to come away from it with a Cliff's Notes understanding of Treasure Island. Um, but they change enough of it so that a kid would be able to go, what does Long John Silver have on his shoulder? Well, it's a sort of a pink amorphous blob that keeps turning into other stuff. I thought it was a parrot. No, it's a blob thing. That was one of the wacky changes. Um, they, they, they excise blind pew and, and Billy Bones is reduced to like a single brief moment uh, at the beginning to the point where you don't – the black spot's not in there. There's no sort of reference to that. Even the Muppets managed to slip that one in there. <laughs> Um, Billy Bones' words, beware the cyborg, which I, I don't believe is an original line from the book. Um, <laughs> beware the man with one leg. Here's the thing. You can still set it in space, but have these elemental reference points, which still relate back to the book, still be there. Um, the, the ship is called the Legacy. And no one ever really... I think Dilbert mentions it once, the legacy. The ship is called the Hispaniola. It is a wonderful kind of galleon type. It's gorgeous in the film. It's, it's a triumph. Giving it its proper name from the book... I mean, I don't know whether that tested well with audiences or they were like, well, hang on, how come it's not Hispanic? Or something like that. Like, if you give it its name and proudly display it on the side, kids, what's the name of the uh, ship in Treasure Island? Well, it's the Hispaniola, isn't it? And they'll know that shit! And th there's... 
enough things that are slightly tweaked to the point where they're nonsensical that a kid coming away from this being asked about what actually happened in Treasure Island would be about as accurate as Bart Simpson. Well, as Mrs. Krabappel already mentioned, the name of the book that I read was Treasure Island. It's about these pirates. Pirates with patches over their eyes and shiny gold teeth and green birds on their shoulders. Did I mention this book was written by a guy named Robert Louis Stevenson and published by the good people at McGraw-Hill? So, in conclusion, on the Simpson scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, 1 being the lowest, and 5 being average, I give this book a 9. <clears throat> Any questions? Nope, then I'll just sit down. Bart, did you read the book? Mrs. Krabappel, I am insulted. Is this a book report or a witch hunt? Then perhaps you'd like to tell us the name of the pirate. Blackbeard, Captain Nemo, Captain Hook, Long John Silver, Silver. Pete, Bluebeard. Bluebeard? Sit down, Bart. I'll see you after class. This is why adaptations, no matter how crazy, need detail and accuracy. If you don't need to change apples to space blobs, don't do it. If you don't need to change the name of the Hispaniola, again, don't do it. These details sink in. Your movie becomes an ambassador for the original text. Perhaps the last vestige of connection for an entire generation. And if one generation misses out, who's going to teach the next generation? And then the particulars of the book become lost in time. Treasure Island itself is an archaic book. It was, it was actually serialised in like 1881 to 82 in the children's magazine Young Folks and then turned into a book. It was, it's been adapted many, many times, but the last like proper adaptation of it for, but wasn't made for TV was the friggin' Disney one in 1950. <laughs> Uh, and like modern day, they pretty much can't do it straight. I, I was thinking, well, wouldn't it be great if Pirates of the Caribbean 6 was Treasure Island? But how would you even do that? They would work in Jack Sparrow to the point where he was morph, like distracting everybody from the core story somehow. I mean, if you take Jack Sparrow out, people will go, well, this isn't Pirates of the Caribbean. So it's now at the point where you pretty much can't do it straight. We're getting to the stage now where the book itself is impenetrable for young readers. By the time you're old enough to read Treasure Island, you're too old to really be thrilled by Treasure Island, which is where the movies come in with a certain level of responsibility to sort of convey that for the new generations in a way that's still exciting. And unfortunately, that is a huge financial risk because if you play a 120-year-old book exactly as it was written, it's not going to hold up for modern-day audiences. So it's a real juggling act, and I completely understand what they were up against. If they'd approached it with more of a remit of, let's just change just enough that it's space, but that it's still basically Treasure Island, we just swap the word island for planet, and then we put in just enough of the sci-fi concepts in there for it to actually, uh, for this... It's not even really sci-fi, it's sci-fantasy. The, the space itself is called the Ethereum, and you can sort of breathe in it. It's, it's more like an ocean, and that's wonderfully imaginative, evocative imagery. And I, I kind of wish that um, there had been less six-armed farting aliens and a few more beats and notes from the story. Um, I, I, I can understand why they condensed Squire Trelawney and Dr. Livesey into Delbert, but when Delbert did the go Delbert, go Delbert, and half the test audiences loved that and half the test audiences hate, hated that, why did they go with the half that loved it? Did they not figure 
Jerry Springer gags might date like crazy. All my life I've been waiting for an opportunity like this, and here it is, screaming. Go, Delbert. Go, Delbert. Go, Delbert. Go. Okay, okay, you're both grounded. And the other thing is, um, is th- would you think this film would be possible to retrofit in 3D and then re-release? I mean, if they can do it, and if they can do it to Lion King and Beauty and the Beast, then yeah. I suppose so. It must be probably expensive, more easily, though, yeah. honestly. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely an expense. It, it would be an expense, but I just wonder if if they might make back finally what they they paid for the damn thing in 2015 at the time of recording. It's not even been released on Blu-ray in the UK. The whole thing sort of reeks of fun, you know, financial write-off. It's made such a tiny cultural footprint. Hmm. I don't expect there's anything they could do to muster up hype around it at this point. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, if, if pirates suddenly became huge, I mean, again, because here's the irony. This was like 2002. This was 2002. And like pirates of the Caribbean came out and because of black pearl came out in 2003. (laughs) Yeah. Came out in uh, November, 2002. And Curse of the Back Pearl, July 2003. So eight months later, an entirely unrelated pirate film comes out and does 654.3 million. Yeah. <laughs> Both a much Disney! Better, a much better pirate film, arguably. Oh, but, yeah, no, no, not even all yeah. that, arguably. It's, it's a, it's a yes. tight, great film, so yeah. But yeah, the fact that this made less than half of even what Lilo and Stitch made, and Stitch was, it was the budget film, it it was bad. Yeah, there were there were layoffs and cutbacks following this. It was yeah. This cemented the fact, kind of in everyone's head, that Disney animation was going into a tailspin. Yeah. But the things that they seem to have pounced on are entirely the wrong things. To look at that and go, well, people just obviously aren't interested in two D animation anymore, are they? Well, no, no. There, there, were, there weren't farting aliens with six arms in parts of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl. But there are farting aliens with six arms in things like Minions and Home. There, I mean, there was, to an extent, I think there's a few reasons this film flopped, and I think a large part of it is maybe just timing. I think at a different time in that Treasure Planet could have worked a lot better, but part of it was that. I mean, Pixar and DreamWorks 3D films were really taking off, and Disney's output was on average, going downhill. There were still, obviously, Lilo and Stitches and stuff like that coming out, but on average, they were capturing people's imagination less and less. So for uh, I think that would have just been a temporary trend, but for a little while, yeah, 2D films were getting... People were less excited about them. And it didn't help that Disney really didn't promote Treasure Planet nearly yeah. as aggressively as they should have. Like they, I said, they, they treated it like a write-off. Yeah, like a lost cause. But... There's also the fact that this came out to some deadly competition. Like Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Fellowship of the Rings. Jesus. Like, not, it didn't stand a chance. Not unlike another 2D film. No, no, Two Towers, <laughs> not Fellowship of the Ring, yeah. Oh, was it Two Towers? Okay, yeah, well, after Fellowship of the Ring, when people would have been already even more hyped for it. So, Still, yeah, it was like better this. than the other space opera that came out two weeks later, Star Trek Nemesis. <laughs> wow. Gar. Yeah. It really didn't stand much of a chance at this point, which is which is a shame because it definitely could be stronger, no question. There's it has its flaws, but um, it probably deserves to do a bit better than it did. It probably got lost a bit to the Santa Claus Two as well, which came out on the first of November of that month. Hi, yeah, yeah. 
there didn't seem to be enough of a hook for this one. Like, how do you get people in and convince them that it's going to be more than just a rip-roaring fun? Because, I mean, Spider-Man came out that same year as well. People were just gearing up for the fact that they needed superheroes. And yeah. they also needed escapism, though. So it's, it, this is escapism right here. There were a lot of fun adventure films, like big adventure films coming out around that time. Just either fantasy or sci-fi or just all manner of them. Soon a literal pirates movie. That You're right. I'm not sure there was enough to really hook people with this. Like I, I love the art design and the aesthetic of this. In retrospect, it makes it one of the more, more fun things to, uh, to watch. And it makes it really visually distinct. And I like that, but it's, that's definitely not going to sell millions of tickets see I don't know I, I would say like you know juvenile humor isn't gonna sell you tickets Ice Age released in March of that year certainly didn't have any problems but juveniles juvenile 383 will, million juvenile humor will only sell your film if you make sure you put enough of it in the trailers well actually if you remember the trailers for Ice Age were really neat they had scrat it's all like that yeah. uh, the, 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 the saber tooth squirrel trying to hide his nuts well, trying to keep keep it, get hold of an acorn. It was, um, in fact, I think maybe the trailers sold that film more than anything. Now, Scrat sold Ice Age for the entire length of the franchise. Honestly, the yeah. first, yeah, the, it put people in the theater to watch the first film, which, which was actually a quite good little film. But Scrat remained the, is the thing that made people keep coming back. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's not juvenile humor. That's that's visual like Looney Tunes humor. I'm not sure. What could have been done to save this or to change this? Like if they'd gone in at the the eleventh hour, I do think that they put too much money in it. I think that if if at the scripting stage they had really just focused on getting the whole the structure of the film really tight, and then thought about how much that they could plow into making it look beautiful, because it did look beautiful. And they've gone for a specifically, they, they're emulating the style of the old adventure books and the covers for, for things like Treasure Island. Uh, and, and they've gone for that kind of like stylized adventure palette. It's not all realistic. But if it had had a really like focused story, I mean, that's one of the things that like, people sort of forget about Pixar. It's not just that it looks gorgeous or that it's really funny. They've got really tight stories around this time. You've got Absolutely. Finding Nemo around about this point. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's... It may have been inevitable that this film was going to not do well just for due to the timing and the, the environment it was released in. That, that may have just been an inevitability. But if it were a stronger film, it would have been enduring and people would have kept watching it and it would have yeah. come back and people would be talking about it. And when Blu-rays came out, people would go out and buy tons of them. Yeah. Because good films endure. I mean, Jaws still makes money. Yeah, Jaw still makes a lot of money. Yeah, the the like a classic is invaluable because it makes money forever. Yeah, and the irony is they were so close to Star Trek, like with, with the actual story. It's not a million miles away. They had some really strong stuff. The the constant we have to refocus on Jim weakened it. As as you said, it's um it, it it shuts out everyone who's not wholly invested in Jim. And by this point, people were starting to invest more in silver. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I'd be fine with investing more in Jim if they needed to make Jim work, though. Yeah. What they were investing in Jim wasn't what was uh, 
it wasn't winning over audiences. I do love Emma Thompson's character, by the way, Captain Amelia, the um, uh, the, the, the the comedy cat. But at the same time, she's got a wonderfully clipped tone to her, and I could have like. I mean, frankly, I could have, like, the whole film had been focused on her. I'd have loved that. That would have been great. It, it actually it angers Lyra that there aren't more female captains. She's starting to get kind of, well, why can't girls play more stuff? She's starting to notice when girls are being excluded. Doctor, to mule and blabber about a treasure map in front of this particular crew demonstrates a level of ineptitude that borders on the imbecilic. And I mean that in a very caring way. Imbecilic? Did you say? Foolishness, I've got... May I see the map, please? Gentlemen, this must be kept under lock and key when not in use. And Doctor, again, with the greatest possible respect, zip your howling screamer. Captain, I assure you, I... Let me make this as monosyllabic as possible. I don't much care for this crew you hired. They're... How did I describe them? I know, I said something rather good this morning before coffee. A ludicrous parcel of driveling galoots, ma'am. There you go. Poetry. Now, see here. Doctor, I'd love to chat. Tea, cake, the whole shebang. But I have a ship to launch and you've got your outfit to buff up. Mr. Arrow, please escort these two neophytes down to the galley straight away. Young Hawkins will be working for our cook, Mr. Silver. Well, what? The cook? Thompson's performance here, in fact, Emma Thompson in general, was the major inspiration for Sharon's character of Mortimer Wilson in The Princess Thieves. In fact, Captain Amelia could be a character from The Princess Thieves. That's just how she's pitched. Here's a clip. At the base of the steps, Mortimer stood. A tranquilizer dart gun in one hand and her electric prod in the other. Well, for my part, I'm glad it didn't work. It makes what I'm about to say a bit easier. You can knock us both out and then enjoy dragging us back to a cart while whoever survived your many friends out there comes straight for you. Or you can just accept that you aren't going to win this one. I think I might already have one, though. And allow me to explain at gunpoint, because I feel like you're both liable to do something stupid if I don't. Fine. Why have you won? Well, it all depends on whether I've read this situation correctly. As I am to understand it, Mr. Hood, you snatched this lady up late last night, and if logic follows action, you're looking to ransom her to her father. (sighs) Let's say yes for now. And how much were you going to ask for her? Yes, how much, actually? I need 1,000 gold. A piffling thousand? That's all I'm worth to you? It's not a reflection of your actual worth, which is... It's just what I need for my purposes. Which are? Well, that's very complicated. You see, my friend owns this factory. I'm being paid 2000 to bring the princess home. I don't need 2000 We're trying not to be greedy here. If I split my take down the middle, we both walk away with a cool grand. You do what you want with your half. I'll spend mine on whatever naughty things I like. Excuse me? Yes, that does actually sound eminently sensible. And safe, since I'm not extorting anyone. What about the bounty on my head? And my companion? How come you aren't after that? Two reasons. Firstly, my army of lackeys appears to have been unable to defeat them, and clearly can't offer me the manpower required to catch and transport you hoods. 
Secondly, I've been offered a bonus if she's in good spirits on her return. Excuse me. I prefer finesse to blunt force, not to mention biting off more than I can chew. So if you're agreeable, princess, then the bonus should cover the heads of your new friends. Excuse me. I am not a bloody flag to be passed around to improve the standing of the bearer. I never thought of you that way. All right then, you tell me what the thousand is for right now. Fine. And if you like the sound of that, The Princess Thieves is available from Bandcamp, priced twelve U.S. dollars. And, and I like David Hyde Pierce's Dilberts too, yeah, actually. Yeah. And when and when he and the captain are together, like they're they're a great pair of characters to hmm. go back and forth. Mm. They do play little... off each other very well. They they both have a very similar um, posh way of talking <laughs> that works well together. Delbert's got a lot of uh, really uh, excellent little hand motions he does um, to uh, sort of accentuate his little awkward moments, you know? Mm. Oh, there's the, by the time they get to the, the tre- treasure planet, like the entire core is covered in Scrooge McDuck's money pit. <laughs> And, like, it's all gold. And, like, is it wonderful that, you know, with all of these spaceships flying around, that the only currency is an incredibly heavy, dense, and otherwise useless metal? And the pirates are still, like, sort of... I mean, it's, it's fine, it's cool, because, like, it's treasure, and you kind of need the treasure. But the planet itself is incredible. The whole thing is a giant portal device. It's a mass relay to give you the rest of the known universe. And they're all like, oh, look at all this gold. Like, completely ignoring the fact that they're standing on the key to the universe. Yeah, no, the the portal is definitely the actual treasure, but then I just kind of assumed they're still pirates. (laughs) Yeah, but we do like the gold. (laughs) Yeah, if it doesn't come with gold, then no interest. Imagine you get back to Earth, right? Then you buy yourself a massive house and a big car and maybe a ship. And what would you do with the ship? Well, I suppose I'll go about looting other ships to get more gold. Yeah, but you've got all the gold. Well, I suppose I'll just do it just for a hobby, like. Remember that planet that you were on (laughs) that you could have given to the world and said, look, we can completely change the course of man's technological, not just technological, but cultural, universal evolution and bring all cultures from around the universe together with the power of this thing. But fortunately, the pirate king had booby-trapped it to be destroyed. Well, that's all right then. (laughs) It feels like a terrible loss, like all the mass relays exploding at once at the end there. And they get out, in that wonderfully sort of like breakneck moment. But at the same time, I was like, oh, that's a damn shame because that planet was indeed a treasure. the map you're taking me too <laughs> we'll take him out and also it feels like that when when silver gives morph to jim at the end there's a many things going on there like for a start jim's letting him go which is a wonderfully kind of touching moment and there's that whenever the irish inflections start on the score i start to well up 
it's fantastically handled by uh, James Newton Howard and and Jim's kindness is sort of you know, I'll just let you go and it's part of Jim growing up and becoming a man and being responsible for his actions and that's you know most of Jim's growth in the film happens within that one uh, moment but then he gets morph and it's kind of like Jim you've got all the friends you go back and there's this massive party in your honor and all your friends are there. Silver's got nothing. He hasn't got his crew. He hasn't got his ship. He doesn't have his gold. It, by the looks of it, that handful he gives back to Jim was pretty much the lion's share of what he was able to snatch. And now you're taking his only friend. At the same time, though, it is Silver giving Morph to Jim because he knows that Morph will be happier with Jim and that he cares more about Morph than he does about himself. There's a slight tinge of uh, kind of the end of From Dust Till Dawn here at the end. Like, you know, Silver's off to the uh, space pirate equivalent of El Rey, which is not really a place for Jim or even Morph. So, you know, he, he's going to pirate hell. He doesn't want to take everybody else with him. You're best off here, lad. Kind of thing going on there, which um, it's, it's a lovely scene. Ship out with us, lads. You and me, Hawkins and Silver, full of ourselves and no ties to anyone. You know, when I got on this boat, I would have taken you up on that offer in a second. But uh, I met this old cyborg, and he taught me that I could chart my own course. That's what I'm gonna do. And what do you see off that bow of yours? A future. <laughs> Look at you, glowing like a solar fire. You're something special, Jim. You're gonna rattle the stars you are. Got a bit of grease in the cyborg eye of mine. <clears throat> uh, oh, if you did have 3D books that had little like images flying around, like like it would be like a tiny little ship. It'd be like watching 3D movies on your iPad, which would actually make the ships look smaller and more like toys and less like real ships than if you actually saw them on a big screen. It's ridiculous, or uh, less like real ships than if you just imagined them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh yeah, that, that weird kid at the beginning, the one that's eating his jelly worms, he looks like a toddler and is like arranged in a, in a, a seat like a toddler. He talks like a six-year-old. Awesome! And he has braces like a 12-year-old. I don't know who focus grouped that kid together, but um, he freaks me out. Well, he is an alien. Mm. This could have been Disney's Mass Effect. You combine this with a bit of uh, Atlantis and suddenly Jim's gotten together with a whole bunch of different weird aliens and things, you know? But uh, they, they kind of made it, well, that's, it's got to really be about Jim, doesn't it? How far off from Titan AE did this come out? Uh, it's 2000, so two years. Seems almost like a reflective look. Don Bluth's doing a space fantasy. We've got to do one, guys. Yeah. But Titan AE lost all of its money. We'll still do one. Yeah, cost, and Bruce, and those films had become terrible at that point. Cost so. ninety million, made thirty six million times. Jeez, brutal. Yeah. Oh, what about John Resnick's songs in place of the Broadway stuff? What do you think? I was actually fine with it. 
And I think actually I like, like I, even though I don't have any like strong familiarity or attachment to John Resnick himself, I do like the choice of him because I, if you had told me and I didn't know already that um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt had actually been singing those songs, I probably would have believed you. Yeah. Because he has a very similar vocal register. Yeah. Absolutely right. He was the he was the right man for the job, and I only wish that there had been more. There's only two songs in there, and and that one song "I'm Still Here" is the highlight of the film for me. Yeah, because it combines all the emotion in one go. It's a more successful. It the uh, example you came up with during Tarzan of wondering if they were like trying to find someone better than Phil Collins to be filling this sort of uh, yeah voice of the film, film never role. sounds like tarzan or carl right yeah like he doesn't he doesn't sound like or even make give any sort of resembling feel of tarzan nothing about phil collins screams tarzan to you so but he does but look like a, a shaved case. ape <laughs> but yeah like that uh, john resnick like feels like a good fit so i think this is a successful version of that though if we're charting success phil collins score won an oscar and we encountered a wall of people who loved his inclusion in Tarzan. To date, I've never heard anyone talk about John Resnick's music for Treasure Planet. The, the fact that uh, Delbert ends up with Amelia and it's a dog with cat is a nice little um, sort of nod that you know, like doesn't have to go with like kids. Uh, although they do have that whole Lady and the Tramp thing where there's like two cat girls and one boy dog. Um, three cat girls. Three cat girls. Because, of course, the girls have to look like their mum. The boys have to look like their dad. Because that's how genetics works. Yep. Um, Mr. Scroop, by the way, I don't know whether they just bought the name Israel Hans, uh, but uh, yeah, that's uh, Michael Wincott's character. And uh, yeah, he's just a giant. It was the crab with the shifty eyes. <laughs> he's the most cartoonish evil pirate ever. Uh, and one other thing, I love the pistol design. I mean, I love the design in general. Like Specifically, Captain Amelia's cabin is a wonderful little set. And yeah. the, the, the the whole, like, when the map opens up and you got that wonderful bit of music, which, interestingly, from James Newton Howard, ended up feeling... Well, it, it introduced us to Narnia, because it was in the trailer for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's, it's, a, it's a classic bit of music. But they put so much thought into the, um, uh, the visual design at that point as well. You know, the idea of the lighting had to be soft, but the accoutrements of the room had to be efficient and technical and and make it look like you were safe in this room but that she really knew what she was doing and um i i liked that little discussion yeah i like the warmth of the palette in general it's like the i like the choice to despite the fact that this is sci-fi story let's base the look on old book illustrations the look of the film is still one of the high points for me i think really noteworthy things other than john silver yeah, it, they they set out to make a straightforward adventure and they succeeded, um, uh, and uh, it would have been well. We've already listed many many ways which it could have actually been improved. And I'm really really glad that other films since then have actually kind of taken the lead and done it better. Yeah, that's what we were about to sort of like uh, get into in terms of uh, the the superhero film and sci-fi in general was about to become this huge sort of like family business and delivering more and more intricate and interesting like groups of characters became uh, you know, what you expect to go see now for, for decent blockbuster fare. 
School of Movies is funded by our loyal supporters on Patreon, and our $15 tier get named support credit. So, a massive thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin O'Tara, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And all you Phil Collins fans, we know you're out there, will be very happy with next week's episode. It's on Brother Bear. Remember, you can find Dan's work on the YouTube channel New Frame Plus. And that will do it for Treasure Planet, a muddled film with some gorgeous and heart-melting highs and confused, underdeveloped and expensive lows. Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Brother Bear. The world is full of magic. Winter turns to spring. Small things become big. One thing always changes into another. Walt Disney Pictures presents an all-new motion picture event. Are we there yet? Don't make me turn this formation around. You have no idea what they are. You just talk. Just back away. Real slow, like. What's going on? <gasps> How's it going, bear? I'm not a bear. Well, gee, eh? You're one big beaver. No kidding. I'm a man. I was transformed into a bear. Magically. You're crazy. Gesundheit. Do either of you know where the lights touch the earth? Yeah, no. Uh, no. Hey, I know that place. You do? Yeah, follow me. My name's Coda. Say it with me. Coda. I don't want to brag or nothing, but I'm a raging ball of round fur. Oh, really? This November. And keep all that cuddly bear stuff to a minimum, okay, kid? The truth is, I got separated from my mom. See through another's eyes. Those monsters are really scary, especially with those sticks. Feel through another's heart. Coda, don't be afraid. And discover the meaning of brotherhood. I always wanted a brother. Featuring songs by Academy Award winner Phil Collins. Walt Disney Pictures presents Brother Bear. We're back with Daniel Floyd to continue the Disney animated history shows. Hello, Daniel. Hello. And hello, Sharon. Hello. Now, this one was brand new to Dan, as in fact was the next one as well. So we're going to be hearing his thoughts fresh as a daisy on both of them. Brother Bear was released in November 2003. The original premise was going to be a North American set thematic follow-up to The Lion King, which, of course, we all know was Hamlet with lions. Of course, the bear is the king of the forest. So this was going to be, and I swear I'm not making this up, King Lear with bears. Let's let you percolate on that one. Uh, that changed to a king whose son is turned into a bear and stays a bear at the end. 
This was proclaimed by then president of Disney feature animation, Thomas Schumacher, remember that name, <clears throat> to be the idea of the century. And bear in mind, he was talking in the middle of the, well, the tail end of the 20th century at that point. <clears throat> then around 2000, it became a story of a young man turned into a bear who is guided on his journey by a real bear named Grizz, played by Michael Clark Duncan. And having seen this film, I kind of like, I really would like to see how that would have turned out. Because I do too. It would have been a different type of movie. And, uh, you know, I'm going to say later on, uh, Michael Clark Duncan was 98% bear anyway. They just made him look like a bear. So it, it would have been you know, a wonderful role for him to play uh, like a, as an actual full uh, lead character as opposed to a, uh, a small support role. Um, eventually, it became a Canadian story about three Inuit brothers. Sitka, the eldest, attempts to guide his hot-headed siblings but is killed accidentally fighting off a bear. Kenai, the youngest, seeks revenge on the beast itself and angering the spirits, he's transformed into a bear. The middle brother, Danahi, hunts this new bear, who he doesn't realize is his own brother, for his own revenge, and Kenai seeks the spirit so he can change back, helped along by an exuberant young bear named Koda, who turns out to be the cub of the one killed in angry revenge. Kenai's journey is all about learning to stop being so very self-absorbed and to nurture Koda, who, despite being annoying, takes a shine to him immediately and begins to depend and ultimately love his new brother. The finale sees Kenai return to human form after sacrificing himself to save the cub and then willingly change back into a bear in order to continue to care for him. Oh, and they keep meeting these two really annoying moose. <laughs> Mooses, meese, who won't shut the hell up. Ay, ay, ay. Um, so, side note, normally I edit out all the times we go, um, and ah. Uh, but in this one, it feels appropriate. <laughs> what did you make of this one, Dan? Uh, I have a very hard time mustering strong feelings about Brother Bear in general. Because mm -hmm. it, it, is, it is clearly aiming for that Lion King success and the bombast and the scale. Mm -hmm. But In the I same way that Tarzan the, was. Yeah. In much in the same way. But unlike Tarzan, even, uh, the execution just isn't there, I don't think. I think a lot of the attempts fall flat, and I think a lot of the big flaws are ultimately on the script level, because there are a lot of individual parts of this film that work really well. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I should talk positive before I get all yeah, yeah, yeah. about it. <laughs> like, uh, for I one, agree, by the way. I very much like the background art, because those mm -hmm. landscape paintings are beautiful, and I really like the uh, idea to have the... North American forest and wilderness become more bright and vibrant after Kenai's transformation. I think mm -hmm. that's a really cool idea. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people wouldn't even notice it because it's so vibrant up until then. Yeah, yeah. It, it does result in a slightly weird... There's a very sharp tonal shift the instant he turns into a bear, which kind of takes it from a Pocahontas-feeling Disney film to a Lion King-feeling Disney, Disney film. Not a huge yeah. deal, but it, it does... There is a very... It's kind of sharp. It doesn't transition you very, very evenly. Which does also give the feeling that there are two completely different movies mashed together in this. Yeah, it, it starts out feeling very Pocahontas-like because it's, mm. again, set in a real North American historical period with the native people and, a, and an attempt at really capturing what the culture looked like and, uh, and, and attempt to 
capture the spiritual side of that culture mm-hmm. as well and to realize it as a real thing that it, that actually existed in a magical sense. Yeah, they're clearly trying to be very respectful to the Inuit as well. They're Absol- not just absolutely. messing around. And uh, it's, it's, it's a very far cry from Peter Pan. Oh, for sure. But then the instant um, he becomes a bear, then it shifts much more into Lion King mode and gets way more gag heavy. And uh, it just feels like a very different film. And eventually, I think those two tones even out. Mm. But uh, I also actually really like Joaquin Phoenix as Kenai. I don't think the script does him any favors, Mm -hmm. but he's got a really good voice and he really throws himself into it. I think he did quite well. And you're absolutely right that Michael Clark Duncan's Tug character, the uh, little support bear role that he does fill it's a cameo really it's a cameo basically but he is one of the best things in this movie still absolutely he's only in it for a few minutes but he's totally got that phil harris baloo warmth oh no don't say that (laughs) he totally does this version even more i do too like i don't know if it would have been better who who can tell their movies go through so many versions on their way to make it with kevin michael richardson do it do it now i would watch it i'd totally (laughs) watch that uh, I also really like the sequence. I guess it's kind of jumping ahead story wise. I like the sequence with Kenai's realization moment mm. when Coda is telling his story to the other bears because it's really effective. It's edited really well. And it's one of the few times I think the film really succeeds in fully capturing the emotion of the moment yeah. because it's not even like a shocking reveal. I think most everyone's guessed this story point by the time the twist is revealed, but even knowing it, the scene makes you feel it, what Kenai is feeling in those flashes of memory. Mm, and those, sure. those memories are triggering with extra details triggered by Coda's story. And the flashbacks are, come with slightly different angles and little details added in a brief moment where the bear, even though it still looks really bear-like and non-humanized, like says Coda's name or says something, like yeah. has a motherly line in it. Little subtle stuff like that that makes, yeah. even if you're seeing the same camera angle, it makes it feel really differently. It's really effective. And like... Well, well, good filmmaking. Uh, actually, speaking of uh, that, we can't. I can't believe we got this far without mentioning that. Basically, watching Brave, which I had no idea would have as much bear in it as it actually ended up having, I, I was kind of like, "Does anyone else see that this is basically Brother Bear, but it's Mother Bear?" It, it was almost like this film didn't do well at the box office at all. So let's have another go at it. Um, <laughs> So, but they they do the same thing in this uh, of the uh that the, when a bear is portrayed through human eyes it's got these little black beady eyes and it's obviously it's got an animal's um uh, mind in there and uh there there isn't that connection between the two but as soon as a bear is looking at another bear through comprehending human in a bear eyes or bear in a bear eyes if that makes any sense like if you're on the bear's level then suddenly those eyes are big with uh, with with the dots in the middle as as normal they use that in brave to show you know the the switcheroo between the mother having complete control of herself and suddenly not getting it but i mean like you saw brave first so this must have felt more like a a, a retread in a way like it does have a lot of the same I mean, obviously, a lot of very similar surface elements. You've got characters who turn into bears. You've got a, a lot of... Until uh, they learn an important lesson. Right. A lot of emphasis on, emphasis on family and empathy and growing up mm-hmm. and uh, characters being able to communicate with each other and, un- and understand each other better. A lot of those key themes and elements are there. But maybe it's just because of the presentation of this where it feels... This film film ultimately feels to me like it is a desperate pale attempt at capturing 
at imitating Renaissance Disney glory. It is trying very hard. I mean, from the very beginning when Eisner first conceived it, like, let's make Lion King again, but mm. let's make it with bears. And instead of taking inspiration from Hamlet, let's take it from King Lear. Like, it's, mm. the, it's conceptually quite derivative of Disney's own past work and past glory. Yeah. And it, but again, the execution not being there, it just doesn't land in quite the same... It, quite the same place it's like trying to recreate the super soldier serum it's you know you're going to get a lot of screwed up hulks that was put on <laughs> ice for a reason It is sad for me watching these two in particular because mm-hmm. I, normally I think watching this I would just feel kind of um, just ambivalent about it and not care one way or another because it's just because there have been plenty of Disney films before this that were pretty mediocre didn't really register on an emotional level that they're cute and they have some good moments but they just don't really grab you but knowing that at this point I'd, I'd like to think that brother bear if it had been the lion king success that they'd hoped it was might have saved disney animation's traditional studio from being shuttered but it honestly i also I'd had to follow up a very successful treasure planet and atlantis as well though yeah it probably would have stitch. that's the thing by this point in production by the time this came out mm. the studio was already being shut down like i mean it's, yeah you're right it's after atlantis and emperor's new groove and treasure planet bombing and with pixar dreamworks and now blue sky blowing up in popularity mm-hmm. uh i mean like the year before this was released the paris and tokyo animation studios had already been shut down the majority of the burbank staff had been laid off uh leaving just enough people to finish up home on the range but there were no new features in the works after that or planned and the new computer animation team was already being put together it was the fight to save traditional animation was already lost, and the company was just running out the clock by this point. Oh, which, God. It's which, like yeah. an office like which has been bought by another company and is, is being dismantled like just the last few weeks of work when everyone's just like kind of checked out. But not entirely. Like Imagine if they're also having parties. Oh, yeah. And, and Bear parties. <laughs> but, and it doesn't mean that the people who were still there weren't putting their all into the work yeah. because I still think there is some great work in both of these two last films before the big shift. Wow, but, you're uh, including Home on the Range. Wow, okay. I'm, this is, we'll get to it later. I like oh, Home on the Range better than, than oh, Brother Bear. If I'm I'm, we'll get to that in a bit. But we we will gonna, get to it later. We're in another <laughs> Rescue Us Down Under situation. We, <laughs> that, oh, that'll be fun. But knowing that kind of outside 
industry information definitely impacts my feeling watching these last two movies. And and yeah, it, it ultimately makes them a bit more melancholy and sad for me, just knowing what must have been going on and seeing and knowing what the artists making all this work must have been going through at the same time. And yeah. it's that we're at the pretty much the low point of Disney history right here. Yeah, we've uh, uh, I've passed this point. With the home on the range, I suppose, you know, whether you like home on the range or not, once you hit Chicken Little, we're in, what's the opposite of flavor country? Flavorless <laughs> country, tasteless country. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, there's got to be people out there who really like Chicken Little, and I don't mean to upset them, but. I, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm one of those people. I don't know. I haven't watched it. You never saw, oh, it does yeah, not so, feel like Disney. I'll tell you that right now. I, I believe it. there's. In a certain way, even the things that are being made now mm. don't quite feel like Disney, even though they are still great. Yeah. So, but it's it's a different era, and with its own strengths and and great things. But yeah, that is what is the tragedy of this. Even this, even though these last two films weren't even the last two traditionally animated Disney films, mm. they do feel like these. This is the end of an era yeah. that would that had a brief encore. The, yeah, to its credit, actually, now that you mention it, Brother Bear does definitely feel like Disney. If you're a big fan of the 90s Renaissance, but for some reason didn't see this one, get hold of it. It's it's inexpensive on DVD, uh, so it's it's worth watching. It's a mixed bag. The, it is. The, the highs for me are actually really high. The, the, the musical moments, not Phil Collins, but... All, a lot of the other musical moments really like when there's sort of the the uh, the, the drums start in and um, uh, and you get sort of the, the choral elements in there and like something big and spiritual is happening it like like your heart soars at that point. I Those agree. Those really, some really nice handles. bits of score. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if if it could have sort of kept that and been funny the whole way through somehow. It might have been. I'm mean, closer to the Lion King ultimately because that, that that same kind of uh, feel to it. Let, let's go back to the beginning because there are, uh, there are a couple of things we noticed along the way, and we're going to do them in chronological order. Um, okay. Just just uh, just so that we can sort of rem- like remember bits that were happening. Uh, the first line in it, it's um, what turns out to be the middle brother Denahi uh, as an old man talking to a bunch of Inuit children, and he says, "Sharon, what was the line?" Long ago, when the mammoth roamed these lands. Oh, yeah. Okay, you, do you want to go for it? <laughs> well, right, my issue with that, and to start with, I mean, I really like this opening. Yeah. Generally, the, the whole thing feels perfect. And I think, in all honesty, the opening is the route they should have gone mm. with this film. Yeah. It feels like a small, mythological, almost like a Bible story type um approach uh, it's by ice having... age but done uh, with more um gravitas yeah a lot more gravitas yeah but i mean i i would so i can certainly see where the whole um lion king comparison comes from um that you know it feels a little bit like pocahontas as well they're obviously going for that sort of that big spiritual feel but in a small personal story mm. which if they'd stuck with that and not dissolved into the mad cat moose antics <laughs> then i probably would have liked it a whole lot better in fact if i i could probably just scissor out the middle and um and and appreciate this film much better but yeah the the line about uh, long ago when mammoth roamed the earth he's talking about his, not even his own like tiny childhood his own adolescence so we're talking about what maximum 30 40 years here considering how old people actually live they died of old age and fear at the age of 30 well 
animals don't go extinct overnight. It <laughs> takes a, a while. <laughs> the mammal you know, is if, the mammoth is gone now. Yeah, because of you. <laughs> unless there were like three left when he was fifteen, and then they'd all disappeared by the time he grew up. And my brother rode on one. <laughs> but they were. He says they were roaming the earth. So one must assume that there's at least a handful of them still left now. Mm. Um, This is just us being persnickety about the wording of it. But, uh, I mean, basically, it's supposed to draw you in and go, long ago, when the mammoth, you know, roamed the earth. Um, I guess guess that line's talking to us, the viewer, modern day, technically, even though yet it does not quite fit. You crazy old Uncle Danahi, I saw a mammoth this morning. There's three out there right now. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, there's that bit that draws you in, and you get these lovely kind of like uh, like it shows the three brothers, you know, they're, they're kayaking downstream, and there's like loads of sort of ice shifting, and it feels like it says you know where it's got Tina Turner singing, and she's like back in time when the Earth was young, and it's like again Earth was young. This is really only not that long ago in terms of actual Earth history, but I suppose what you mean is before we ravage the hell out of it. One of my favorite ways of getting perspective on the age of the Earth is uh, Bill Bryson in the short history of nearly everything. The term Precambrian is in reference to an extreme amount of time before there was complex life on Earth. And the following statement is intended to give you perspective on how short a time human beings have actually been walking the planet. Perhaps an even more effective way of grasping our extreme recentness as a part of this 4.5 billion year old picture, is to stretch your arms to their fullest extent and imagine that width as the entire history of the Earth. On this scale, according to John McPhee in Basin and Range, the distance from the fingertips of one hand to the wrist of the other is Precambrian, 88% of the Earth's existence. All of complex life is in one hand, and in a single stroke, with a medium-grained nail file, you could eradicate human history. Oh, and being afraid, hating each other, appointing the dumbest people as our leaders, dividing, refusing to unify, fixating only on the differences between us, refusing to teach or accept science, refusing to give science far, far greater weight than superstition, facts being outweighed by misinformed feelings, refusing to focus on the best aspects of our religion and instead focus on the parts that divide and conquer, refusing to look after each other, denying climate change, and generally acting like we ourselves are the most important thing in existence, but on an individual scale rather than a global scale. That's that nail file. Apologies for the existential crisis you probably didn't expect from a Brother Bear episode.
Uh, yeah, she's got a great kind of soaring sing-song here. And because uh, you're also seeing Tanana, the female shaman, thumbs up there, by the way, uh, there's kind of a, a feeling like uh, that, that she's being identified with Tina Turner there as well, which is great. Um, and you get sort of this Inuit folklore side of things. And, and they're sort of originally they were going to be just sort of um, dancing on this outcrop of rock. And then they turned it into a sort of a, a it's like, like a, an open air cave type thing. Um, possibly because someone mentioned, well, that's just Pride Rock. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't have the same kind of deep canvas feel as Tarzan, but it's got a similar flavor, if you get my drift. It, it Actually, yeah, animation-wise, it feels closest to Mulan at this stage. Which makes sense, because yeah. was, this was still the Orlando studio and yeah. their third and final film, yeah. and Mulan was the one that preceded it. So, yeah, yeah, no, wait, Lilo and Stitch was the one that preceded it. Mulan was before that. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so it's it's less rounded than uh, Lilo and Stitch, but um, it's that might be what emphasizes the mythical feel, though, because it's uh, Mulan had that that yeah, sort it's of okay. yeah yeah. Um, and I, I applaud them for for basically trying something new rather than just um, going for oh the worst thing animation can do is to go for what's trendy and streetwise and what everyone else is doing because you're for a start you're going to be a year or two late and secondly. It's going to date like crazy. Yeah. 
It's true. And these these a, take too long to make. And there was a lot of that going on in the early 21st century. A mm-hmm. lot. It went from like Disney having the, uh, the complete um, monopoly to a load of new studios springing up and all basically competing with each other for the next screaming animal um, picture. Um, and yeah, the, uh, the um, transformation is uh, another fantastic moment. And uh, the, uh, the, the moment where um, Kenai kills the bear, it feels wrong. And it, it feels like everything leading up to it is like every step of the way, you could have not done this and you could have ch- you know turned back. But he's um, portrayed as a hot-headed young man who, uh, whilst not ugly in, in how angry and uh, um, hate-filled he is for this bear, is not able to actually consider the, the broader situation. Mm. And uh, he is also ultimately grieving for his brother, so it's understandable. I think they do get the the raw emotion in all the brothers across quite well in this section, though, because um, the the moment where Kenai kills the bear, it's almost although he's gone after her in anger and fury, and, and you know, obviously the this incredibly strong love that he has for his brother is 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 been converted into this grief and rage. When the moment happens, it's pure self-defense. She leaps for him and he just holds the spear up in, in fear. Um, and I think the the transitions and the way they make um, the camera movements so quick and it's all very confusing. And um, it's it's the idea that in that situation where you've got all these major emotions washing around, mm-hmm. things become unclear. It's not entirely cut and dried what's happened and who it's happened to and who's to blame and what started it. Everything kind of just mashes in together and i think they they really do get that across quite well and the obviously the weather changing and the ground shifting and all that kind of thing there's just this yeah yeah, there's just this feeling of everything being uncertain and everything constantly moving and all of them having to fight really really hard to keep a grip on who they are and how they feel and his redemption when it finally comes is uh, kind of a reversal of that scene where he's in the form of the bear it's Mm. similarly panicked and and uh uh, chaotic moment, uh, but his instinct there is rather than to protect himself, to to protect someone else. So yeah. uh, that sort of comes full circle. And if you look at the fact that technically speaking, when um, he kills the bear, she's defending Coda, yeah. and so is he. Yeah. So it really is a completely fair swap. It puts her in her. It puts him in her paws. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to note that that wonderful choral element that feels so tribal, so natural, so ancient, and so connected with the Inuit and the Native American people is in fact a Bulgarian women's choir. You almost couldn't get much further apart than Bulgaria and Canada. But it's supremely effective, so much so that James Horner used similar voices in his Avatar soundtrack to kind of immerse us in a tribal background. And Disney used similar voices in their Rivers of Light show at Animal Kingdom, which is spectacular, I might add.
So, yeah, that happens. And then the moose turn up and stay. <laughs> I will say, I've lived in Canada for three and a half years. And <laughs> These I are the heard... most Canadian people you've ever seen. No, that's the thing. Like, I heard the word A in this film more than I did in my entire time up in Canada. <laughs> I thought this was a natural levels of A. It is. It is. It is a American's stereotype perspective of what a Canadian talks like. And is I feel like at least South one Park? of these actors, in a way, yes. Look, guy, we have to stay strong. If you don't stand with your fellow Canadians, then you are a rat. Don't call me a rat, buddy. I'm not your buddy, friend. He's not your friend, guy. I'm not your guy, buddy. He's not your buddy, friend. I'm not your friend, guy. Let's give it up, guy. Don't call me your guy. I am not your guy, friend. I'm not your friend, buddy. I'm not your buddy, guy. Because the South Park one is at least funny, and it's pushing the stereotypy version like in the right way and in the yeah. right places. I think there's a lot of times when these guys just say A at the end of a sentence that doesn't feel right, yeah. as like the right place to put it. And I feel like Rick Moranis is Canadian, isn't he? Yeah. I, I've, poor guy. <laughs> I think this was his last film as well. He pretty That's much sad. Like, he hung up his towel and went right. I've got enough money now. I can uh, you know from the the Honey I Shrunk the Kids movies. I can probably stop now. And Rick Moranis, one of the funniest guys in the eighties. It's true. How, how is he not funny here? A beaver. I'm not a beaver. I'm I'm a bear. No, I mean I'm I'm not a bear. I'm a man. Excuse me. <laughs> I was transformed into a bear magically. I, I was lifted into the sky by my brother. Uh-huh. Crazy! Because then I... No. A uh, fruitcake! Are you okay? Uh, no! That bear over there! He's crazy! I am not crazy! Wh- who? Whoever said you were? We understand. You do? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. W- w- you see, we're not moose either. We're, we're not? No! <laughs> we're like, uh... We're like squirrels, yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah! Beauty, eh? Uh, yeah, well, he... He's actually the squirrel, eh? I'm... I'm more of a purebred wolverine. Look at these cuspids. Give them a little room. Uh, why am I even talking to a couple of dumb moose? No, we're squirrels, eh? Wolverine. The comedy all falls flat, despite him being a very funny person. Mm. It's, it, it is really script-level stuff that I think is, is what hurts this film the most. Like, a, all the, a? Most, of, most of the comedy falls flat. Like there, are, it has some funny moments, but most of it doesn't quite land. And the sense of character drama in the dialogue and the way that it ties to the themes feels cons- like inconsistent in various places and a little hard and just unclear in others. I think we've talked a couple times about how the beginning of the film feels like a different movie than the later part after he be, after he becomes a bear and i think part of that is the tone for sure because they definitely feel different and it, the film looks different but i think it is also because this film introduces a lot of different very valid great themes and motivations and ideas for its character that it's got the uh the sense of empathy for a group that you don't understand it's got this coming of age growing up that kenai needs to go through it's got Oh, what are some of the other really good themes it's got going? It's, it ha- <laughs> I'll let you go on this one. Thank you. It's got the blending of the uh, the worlds of man, animal, and spirit, yes. which is reflected in the fact that at the very end, you have one brother who's spirit, one brother who is an animal, and one brother who's a man. 
Absolutely. And and I think they're all good themes and they're all touched on at various points of the film, but I have a hard time deciding for sure which one of them defines this movie beginning to end, which one of them defines Kenai's arc beginning to end. And if one of them does, I think there are a lot of places in the film where the other takes uh, over. Where, where something else takes over, or where the dramatic momentum of that arc yeah. and that theme falls to the wayside or and is kind of or is ignored by the character entirely for a large chunk and i think the middle third is really where a lot of things start to drag or get upstaged by moose or get upstaged by moose or just be a sense where there's a real lack of dramatic momentum like that there's Kenai knows he's got an objective like he knows he doesn't want to be a bear anymore and he knows he has to get to this place I guess which will, like, where the light touches the earth where mm. something will happen for most of that middle third he doesn't seem too eager or anxious to get there his motivation mostly seems to be to be annoyed at the smaller bear for yeah. a long it's... time and the smaller bear's motivation doesn't it's really hard to see why he's hanging around Kenai his motivation seems to just be kind of annoyed Kenai. So you just have two characters who are annoying one another or being annoyed by the other and traveling together for some reason for a long time and while bad comedy happens. Yeah. And it just kind of drags for a good chunk before it picks back up again. Now that you mention it, Coda's arc would have really benefited from at one point after um, Kenai starts telling him uh, about uh, his mother being dead for Coda to say, I know. And for him basically to admit that he has known that his mother's been dead for quite some time now, and he's just been trying not to confront it. Um, yeah. Because that would have been an arc for him to basically come around to that. It does feel like it needs one more moment of Coda dropping the kind of fun, cute... Little stinker. Kid, little, yeah, little kid thing. And, uh, and that he does. In the movie, he does have that moment, but... Phil Collins keeps singing over it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. God, yeah. I've got here oh. Collins creep. Do you know what yeah. that is? It's like feature creep, only it's when Phil Collins sidles in in the middle of a moment, like an emotional moment maybe in this case, like a really good emotional moment, and starts singing, Oh, brother bear, I was so blind. And it's like, oh, shut up, Phil. Just let it play out. And they're actually they are lowering the volume on this quiet, dignified conversation between these two characters we've come to care about to let Phil Collins bleat away. Everywhere I turn, I hurt someone. But there's nothing I can say to change the things I've done. Of all the things I hid from you, I cannot hide the shame. And I pray someone, something will come to take away the pain. There's no way out of this dark place. No hope, no future. Another 
I, I did actually shout it at the screen while watching it. Shut the hell up, Phil Collins. I'm trying to hear the bears. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for validating me on this one. Because like, even like, that, that, like when Coda starts singing, tell everybody I'm on my way. And then Phil's like, I'll take this one. Tell everybody. <laughs> it's like, shut up, Phil. The kid's going to sing. Tell everybody. Skies ahead, yes, I'm on my way, and there's nowhere else that I'd rather be. Tell everybody I'm on my way, and I'm loving every step I take. With the sun beating down, yes, I'm on my way, and I can't keep this smile off my face. Cause like, like, yeah, he's. Uh, it's it's really quite a well balanced, annoying character in, in terms of Coda, uh, Coda because he is annoying but he's lovable, kind of in a donkey kind of way. He's not funny in the way that Donkey is, but you want good things to happen to him. He's not just an annoying little piss weasel. Yeah, I, I don't hate Coda actually. Like I think he's, I mean, these characters are definitely a tough balancing act of cute and annoyance and the cute has to always just slightly edge out over the annoyance for you to not hate the kid mm-hmm. and there are times where i think maybe he's either just slightly too annoying or not quite cute enough to it's get the, away with it but it, for the, the word part, is precocious my yes. god is he precocious he's totally precocious but you but yes he you don't end up hating the character which is the important thing yeah. i i think the balance is mostly maintained speaking of phil collins stuff like i actually don't have strong negative feelings for the songs in this either i think melodically i'm fine with them and i and hmm. i know he helped write the score too and he yeah, no, either the tina turner nice. song is also his he just sort of stepped back and let her play sing it because she's better at it for that particular moment yeah and i think he might actually sing less in this than in tarzan oh yeah he does yeah he wants to be all the characters though you know, like in Tarzan, yeah. he was he was Carla for the scum. Stop your crying, it'll be all right. And then he was the narration voice for um, uh, Two Worlds. And then the same for Son of Man. And then he's Rosie O'Donnell for Trash in the Camp. And then he's Tarzan for Strangers Like Me. He he veers back and forth between like he's the voice of the movie, which yeah uh, is is too much to give to one man. And I don't think he's a great fit for being the voice of either of these two films. Yeah. I, I think, although we were told by plenty of listeners after the Tarzan episode that Phil Collins is a okay with you guys, you can totally have a singer and their voice be the voice of the film, singing a lot of these songs. And I, I can't think of a good example right now, but I somebody I know. Like, basically somebody big and black with a great voice. Like, like, I mean, Tina Turner, frankly, would have been great. Tina for a Turner, lot more or the uh, just crooning uh, away for the quieter stuff. Who was uh, there? Was a uh, group of singers who did the um, family. Boys to Men. No, it wasn't Boys to Men. It was a. <laughs> As um, in welcome to our family. No, there was another. Uh, oh, what are they called? It's, we are uh, family. Sister Sledge. Is it? It, it, it may be. There is a group of singer of like really great four black men who are singers. There's like two younger ones and two really old guys blind boys of alabama that's it. oh okay the uh the blind boys of alabama sing i think it's the family song or they participate in the family song and they could have been perhaps a great voice for this film i think it's 
I think the reason Phil Collins songs bother me more in this one than in Tarzan, but to an extent in Tarzan as well, is that... Quite aside from the fact that he's whiter than the first lifeboat off the Titanic, providing the voice for a story where there isn't a single white man in sight. So, you know, maybe an Inuit recording artist? The lyrics to the songs he writes are aggressively bland and generic. (laughs) (laughs) They... That's what they they lack. There's like they don't have any of the Howard Ashman empathy or yeah. cleverness. They're, they don't have any of the Tim Rice wit. They they almost sound sarcastic or, or like self parody at times. Like he's just like someone is improving here. Sing along to this and make it sound like a bad Disney song. Uh, welcome to our family. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think he's phoning it in. I think he's actually. I think he was doing it his best, but I wonder if I wonder if he felt that writing songs for a Disney family film inherently meant talking down to an extent. Yeah, like if he felt like he needed to make that that I'm writing for a Disney film, that means let's make it. This is for let this is simple and basic and for the kids and for yeah, just nothing too complex that'll go over anyone's head. One jump ahead of the slow pokes. One skip ahead of my doom. Next time, gonna use a nom de plume. Nom de plume, a pen name, meaning a secret identity. In the early 90s, Disney did not talk down to the kids with their songs. I don't know. Like, I don't want to blame him because he's not untalented. He has written some great songs. Phil Collins, not untalented. (laughs) That would (laughs) explain, actually, why he feels wrong for these films, because um, he's... Aggressively bland. Well, I'm I'm just thinking about the whole... If if he thinks that the point of Disney music is to sing down to the audience, then he doesn't get it. Ish. Yeah. No, not at all. No, you've got to grab him by the heart. You can't just sing would you remember when you were a kid maybe you are a kid right now this is a story of a simple bear well howdy folks you look plum tuckered like to set a spell actually we are tired and hungry well we got plenty of room here and all the fresh apples you can eat oh peter we found a new home what are you talking about we're going to natick for what a twinkie factory that might not even exist anymore she's right besides this place is paradise sure is Except for Randy Newman. Randy Newman? Yep. Just sits there all night and day, singing about what he sees. Fat man with his kids and dog Drove in through the morning fog Hey there, Rover. Come on over. Wow, it's nice to have music while we eat. Red-headed lady Reaching for an apple, gonna take a bite. Nope, nope. She gonna breathe on it first. Wipes it on her blouse. She takes a bite, chews it once, twice, three times, four times, stops. Saliva working. Take the long, hard look at Randy. Five times, fat old husband walking over. Let's get the hell out of here. 
and they're walking down the road. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left Side note, by the way, while I have invoked both South Park and Family Guy on this episode, I would like it known that over time, I consider both shows have contributed in no small part to a deeply cynical and nihilistic worldview for more than one generation. A dangerous political ennui in the young, which led to the false equivalency of Clinton and Trump, a pathetic argument which has had a measurable cost of lives in the interim years, the normalizing of rape culture jokes, and just generally encouraging humanity to wallow in selfish complacency rather than make the world better. I wish they hadn't done that. The absence of the appropriate content as well. I mean, we said this a couple of times. There's no I want in yes. this. Oh, we, we said that about um, uh, Home on the Range as well. There's definitely no I want in that. But, um, but in this, Kenai wants to be important to the tribe, clearly. He wants to be a big, tough warrior and his totem is actually kind of important he's given the bear of love which he rejects he doesn't want love it's it's sissy uh his uh elder brother is is it the eagle of uh, uh yes the eagle of, the... of guidance and that's yeah. that's very important he does end up being a, a major guide to them uh the middle brother denahi says something along the lines of wisdom but we never see his totem and it's like, what is this totem? And it felt like it was very important, but then, then we never see it. And it's like, you couldn't have put one minute of that moose chat away and done what Danahi's totem is and actually given him a proper arc. Because to get to wisdom, you need something. And he's robbed of that, really. Agreed. I, and I mean, There's I've, a moose I've, commentary, I've... by the way, folks. If you get the DVD, you can listen to it commentated upon by two annoying moose. Oh boy! Carry on, sorry. <laughs> I think like a lot of the puzzle pieces for this film being it just it emotionally super powerful are there. They mm, just mm. they just somehow they don't connect. Like the the idea of Kenai going out and in his anger attacking a bear, killing it, then becoming a bear, and then seeing his brother, who is not his the middle brother, who is not shown himself to be a violent, aggressive type before this, mm. become like him and seeing himself reflected in, in what his brother's becoming into and just seeing that shift in roles and that shift in perspective that it creates and especially tied to all of that, the little bits and scenes in the second half of this movie where Kenai real, is realizing how bears see humans, like all of As those pieces are there for sticks. a really powerful emotional arc yeah. that I don't think the film quite lands it's even though it's trying to, it's got the the pieces are there, but they're not connected. I don't think. There's a really great moment when he uh, uh, sees a cave painting of a bear facing down a stick figure uh, with holding a spear, and uh, says something along the lines of, "You know, these look at these monsters are scary." And Coda says, "Yeah, especially with uh, the when they've got those sticks." And uh, you know, it's, it's like actually, if you think about it, we're the monsters, which is um, a really nice way. I mean, that, that's for the youngsters, but it's a really great great way of going ah without being too patronizing because ultimately it's also characterization absolutely yeah um here, here's the major problem with it and we've, we've talked about it before uh and, and this is what it really comes down to is the two films being mashed together on the one hand you've got man living in relative respectful harmony with 
animals and we are part of nature and basically live this is like look back when we lived alongside nature and we the world was young and we hadn't ravaged it because we weren't doing that yet this is you know showing primitive man to uh, modern man and saying look we kind of had it right back then and uh, in some places in the world we're still doing that they're basically living off the land and it's it's about as natural and uh, uh, as as accurate as i suppose you can really show in a disney film of man living alongside nature then when you show nature from nature's point of view it's a bear party there's nothing complicated And ducks can talk, and geese can talk, and moose can talk, and they all live in harmony, and they have fun, and they talk like Americans and Canadians, and then you can ride on a mammoth's tusks, and uh, the fish talk, and you can eat the fish that talk. That's in this little bit at the end. Um, And you have a big bear party, and it's just fun. And isn't that just what nature's really... No. You, they're trying to have their cake and eat it at this point. They're trying to present us with one tone, which is the Pocahontas tone. But they, remember in Pocahontas when like everything like seems to really kind of work and then you stick Flit and uh, Miko in there and suddenly she's got these two annoying animals which don't really fit with the rest of the world, but they're there for the kids. And it's like they've mashed in the everything from the animals' points of view is just for the kids and everything else is, what, just for the grown-ups or the kids who can pay attention for just long enough until they get to the silly stuff. And so it's it's this weird kind of... They, they ram naivety in with more of a, uh, a spiritual wisdom. Do you think that's because they think that kids can't cope with nature red in tooth and claw? I mean, you don't actually have to show things eating things. But I mean, the... What what film has actually shown that? The Lion I mean, King. Yeah, The Lion King. Yeah, the, the, yeah there's carnivores and there's There's, death, herb, there's destruction. I mean, they're transposing... There's a gallows humour to it with yeah. uh, Timon talking about that they're going to get eaten and, and the gazelle are never characterised. Um, but, there but there's a lot of seriousness to Lion King, though. Oh, even yeah. though, even with Timon and Pumbaa in it, there is there is a lot of seriousness to Lion King when it wants to have that yeah. moment. Yeah. 
the the welcome to our family bit of it is probably the low point of the film for me because although it is you know fun to see these bears living they're like they're care bears I think one of the lines is even we're bears because we care or something along those lines like seriously you're giving me the actual Canadian care bears and then you're introduced to two young love bears who are like I love you no I love you and they're just it's just too much and it's a shame because the bits from human eyes looking at animals, specifically the uh, uh, the, the wiser, older Inuit, uh, is really refreshingly uh, straight for Disney. You know, that actually makes me wonder if it's not like this would have like suddenly made the movie incredible or anything. But if when Kenai turns back into a human at the end yeah. and he's looking at Coda and Coda's scared and he's caring about Coda if Coda's eyes were then in black animal form but yeah. you still could see now as a viewer and from his eyes the recognition of yeah. thought and of caring and him still caring about this creature even though he's not seeing cartoony like yeah. per- they didn't anymore. take that risk he's still cartoon Coda you're absolutely yeah. right it's, it's would have been a tiny little touch ultimately but just uh, could have been interesting to, to try yeah. I, I think what you're discussing, though, is maybe is probably the thing that ultimately makes me have a hard time getting invested in or caring about this movie. It's because it feels like they are trying to have a couple different movies in here, and those different movies they have are both pale imitations of what they've done before. Yeah, there it's an attempt at a big epic Lion King style musical that doesn't resonate anywhere nearly as strong as the lion king does it's also an attempt to capture that pocahontas gravitas and also big epic musical doesn't quite reach those heights either and pocahontas isn't perfect either but like we've it doesn't quite land what pocahontas does either so it just feels like a pale imitation done at out of desperation at the tail end with a lower budget less less resources and just no chance left and it just it just doesn't stick for me I wouldn't go so far as pale myself. I would say slightly misshapen imitation. Like it's, uh, it's, it's hung too many things from the Christmas tree and now it's lopsided and weird. Like they're trying to go for everything that they've done before and not quite hitting any of them squarely yeah. on the mark. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I did it like I say, it, it does have some, some really nice elements to it. And I'll, I'll be watching this one again and again uh, you know, throughout my life. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that it exists. I'm very sad that it was mismanaged enough to kind of seal the fate of, uh, Dis- of Disney's uh, 2D animation at that stage. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't unprofitable. It actually did make money. Yeah, it, it was like, $250 million. Yeah, which, which is fine, but... It like, made more than it cost. Like, Finding Nemo made that in, like, two months. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, and it came out the same year. It... It, this was not the Hail Mary success that they needed. It, it, it suffers the same sort of problems. You know how the, problem, the same problem with Bambi? So you got the hunter and... Da, 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 and it's like, that's the red and tooth and claw. That's the actual... You know, the, this, this, this is a dangerous world because of man. Man has entered the forest. And then that's immediately followed by... <laughs> And it's like the 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 bunnies in uh, and the whole Twitter pages section is so cloyingly sweet. And ultimately, uh, for bears, just because they're at the top of the food chain doesn't mean that they don't have to struggle to survive. So Kodaka basically said, look, you know, obviously we still have to eat. 
So let's, you know, we, we, you know, we need to also fight off other, you know, predators who are competing for the same meat. So, you know, and, and those are herbivores we occasionally go after. You know, if we piss off a, a goat, it could do us some real damage. And that yeah. bit where the, the, the rams are shouting at the echo is so tedious. It's like, it, that doesn't even work in context. Yeah, and it's unnecessary because they're clearly only introduced for that gag. They, there's no point to having that scene in there. Yeah. No, you shut up! Hey, will you shut up? No. Just shut up! <laughs> when this film is trying to be just dramatic, it's actually really pretty good. When it's trying to be funny, it is cringe-inducingly unfunny. It works against itself. It undermines its own gravity. This is why script is so important. Like, the goats don't show up again until the end to kind of bring the Just, gag back yeah. and then it and wasn't then funny they, the first yeah. time <laughs> exactly and that actually that reminds me the sort of meta level end credits lots of gags playing over the credits and then the final weird sort of fourth wall breaking talking fish to, to, no, talking no fish, fish were harmed in the uh, making of this picture yeah it doesn't feel at all right for this movie and what this movie was it's, it feels more Aladdin-y or honestly it feels more Pixar film because it because that's what Pixar films did at that early on they had yeah. end credits where they had sort of the cut outtakes, like, yeah. outtakes which for even for Pixar in retrospect I think they don't do it anymore because I think they found that it feels a little bit weird and goofy and kind of undercut some of what the film does yeah but it, it just it's just one more way that it, this film feels like it's imitating other successes even in places where it does not feel appropriate for what they are trying to do yeah it's also themselves. it's it's lacking one absolutely standout performance as well. If uh, if Michael Clark Duncan had been in it and it had actually been a dramatic performance from him and there had been some real pathos to it, that could have been like Mufasa levels of incredible. Yeah, I, I, I do really wish that. we could have heard more of him. Oh. Yeah, um, but I mean, like, there's no genie in it. There's no um, who's the standout vocal performance in Beauty and the Beast is actually Beast. His uh, uh, yeah, the great and unsung Robbie Benson. I asked nicely, but she refuses. What does she want me to do? Beg? Show me the girl. Well, the master's really not so bad once you get to know him. Why don't you give him a chance? I don't want to get to know him. I don't want to have anything to do with him. I'm just fooling myself. She'll never see me as anything but a monster. It's hopeless. This incredible power behind that. Lance Henriksen in Tarzan. There's, there's so much that can be said about a presence on screen in a Disney film. On balance, the most impressive vocal performance in this entire film is actually Jeremy Suarez as Coda. You know, he's a precocious little stinker, but so much of the drama of this film is actually resting on his little shoulders and those are the animators that bring Coda to life. But it's lacking that weight of a Mufasa, of a Judge Claude Frollo, or an Ursula, or a Megara. And, you know, Joaquin Phoenix is absolutely fine in it. But, you know, Matthew Broderick was absolutely fine as Simba. The most interesting thing that happened to me this year. Hmm. 
Oh, I know, I know, I know. Listen to this. I'd say it was when I finally knocked down that tree that was blocking the view from my cave. Now I got a family of chipmunks staying in my place. <laughs> yeah. And then, out of the trees, jumps the hunter! And now, there's nowhere for Mom to go. The monster has her backed up against this giant glacier! The monster attacks! But Mom's too quick for it. And before he can do it again, she stands up real big and yells, Go away! Kina! Then Mom smells more of them. There's a whole pack coming right at her. This is this is one of those films where um like fifty five minutes of it is actually really quite great and twenty minutes of it is really quite ugh. um and 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 had it had half an hour instead of like even better than the really quite great it could have been like give it a, a much more meaningful midsection and a. a, a a bigger ending which encompasses more than simply, you know, oh, I've learned my lesson. I, you know, care about one other brother. It's over so quickly. Like he's on his journey, uh, um, like about halfway through, and then he he learns his lesson way too quickly. After they haven't really done much, they they got mammoths to take them most of the way, and then they had a party with some bears, and then the middle brother shows up, and there's that the showdown. It is, however, uh, I realized after watching it, or during watching it, really has been the elements of this crept into Tiger's Eye, I realized now. that I made Tiger's Eye with a lot of um, Tarzan in mind, but I hadn't realized quite how much Brother Bear was also in there as well. So Interesting. I think uh, Tiger's Eye fans might uh, notice some when they uh, watch it next. Are we done on Brother Bear? Because the world I don't think was. I have anything else really to <laughs> add about it. School of Movies is funded by our loyal supporters on Patreon. And our $15 tier get name support credit. So, a huge thank you once again to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow. Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And to everyone who supports us on Patreon, you guys keep us going. And if once again we've underestimated Phil Collins, let us know on Twitter if he was the perfect voice for Brother Bear. We want to know because we like to set the record straight. It's not just about our opinions on this show. Maybe his, and I'm quoting Dan here, aggressively bland music was very appealing to some of you. I don't know, maybe Sting would have been better. In the quiet time of evening When the stars assume their patterns And the day has made his journey And we wonder just what happened Either way, at School of Movies. And especially share this show around, folks. Some more people are coming to us as a direct, measurable result of being promoted on Twitter, who've never heard us before. So if you like the Disney shows, let people know. And you can see Dan's work on YouTube with New Frame Plus. 
and we will be back next week with a double bill of barnyard shenanigans in two of Disney's grottiest movies, Home on the Range, starring accredited bigot Roseanne Barr, and Chicken Little, as we chart their painful transition from 2D cell animation to 3D computer animation. And entered maybe their darkest hour.
will see you again next week. I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. out.